Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have 3 2 go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with Amanda Hunter of the Barbara Lee Foundation, and in Two Minutes with Tom, we're talking unions and the recent victory for stop-and-shop workers. First up, 3 2 go Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, there's a new podcast platform called Swoot, and it's designed to make it easier for podcasts to get noticed. And hey, this is a podcast, so we'll discuss it. And facial recognition technology will soon be used on almost every departing passenger within the next four years in the U.S. It's part of new measures by Homeland Security to crack down on people overstaying their visas. We'll discuss. Finally, we'll also discuss some international travel experiences that I encountered on a recent trip, both the good and the bad. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Kyan, it's good to be back. Welcome back. Thank you. We took a little hiatus. We did. We took a little vacay hiatus. A little little vacation. You really hiatused. You went to Italy. I did. I was here. Elsewhere also. Yeah, you went all around. Brooke and I were here. I went to Italy. I went on a planned little trip uh, to uh, Ireland. I went on an unplanned trip to Paris. You did. (laughs) So we'll talk about (laughs) that. You really did. All right, let's get to it. All right, Cayenne, podcasts and podcast platforms. You got your Spotify, you got your SoundCloud, you got your iTunes, the original, you got your Google Play, Stitcher, some others, right? Tune in. Tune in. Now there's Swoot, a couple weeks old, Swoot, new platform, um, designed especially to help podcasts um, get more visibility and recognition. It's Podcasts do have a visibility issue mm-hmm. there are so there's so much great content for instance a little something we like to call OA on air so much great content um, uh, but sometimes it can be challenging uh, to build an audience uh, when the shareability is not so easy this is designed to address that how so uh, so it's going to sort of list podcasts in a streaming feed. Uh, and you can recommend podcasts to your friends that you like or that you're listening to. Uh, if you are looking at a podcast uh, and your friend likes it or listens to it, like a little icon will pop up that you have a friend that's listening to this podcast, um, which is really great because while there is a lot of great podca- podcast content, there's also some not so great podcast content and it's kind of all just mashed in together for the most part it really is i mean stuff that's being done off off someone's smartphone at the kitchen table is right there next to something yep. that's heavily and highly produced and it might be great content yeah. at the kitchen table sure. or, um, it, yep, or it might not be but it could be but there are some podcasts that i've gone to when i you know go to search for something and it'll come up I'm like oh that sounds interesting and they haven't had a new episode in three years that's a big pet peeve of mine. Drives me crazy. I, I, I think the, we need to weed these out, or they need to live in like if, an archive system. If you're not an active <laughs> podcast with regular Get updates, and it doesn't have to be weekly, yeah. which Away On Air is a weekly podcast, yeah. doesn't have to be weekly, or you know. but if it's not regular in terms of its uh, 
uh, appearance. I agree that how can we separate those? Um, so 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 you're getting access to fresh content. Yeah, drives me that drives me a little cuckoo. Uh, so it'll be good. The problem, I think, one of the hiccups that will exist with this is that in order for it to really work, your friends need to be on the app. Uh, I'm sure you're going to be able to access them through and invite them through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, your email and contact list, whatever it may be. But if if your friends aren't engaged on the app, then you're not getting that podcast intel from them. So I think it's going to take some time, but if it catches on, it could be, I think, a really great thing for the podcast world. It could be. I, I wonder if it if it encourages some podcast producers to, to to maybe choose Swoot in a way where they're pushing their listeners in that direction, right? We we typically say that we're, you know I think our our default is kind of SoundCloud, but we say also available on all other mm-hmm. popular podcast access points, iTunes and such. But this seems to be set up in a way where you, where you want to build your audience on this and i guess that will determine the success or failure yes of this startup they put three million dollars behind it so that's some it's, money that's money that's some money that's real it's money a, it's real money it's yeah. not a huge raise of capital but it's something for it's something yeah yeah all we right see we'll we'll be back in a couple swoop. months to check in on swoop and, and i think we will um we i will think we'll, add it. we will we will add swoop to our own uh Repertoire. Yeah, arsenal, if you will. Arsenal of, uh, <laughs> of podcast access points. All right. Swoop. Thanks, Cayenne. All right, Cayenne, let's talk about aviation. The Department of Homeland Security says it expects to use facial recognition technology on 97% of departing passengers within the next four years. That involves obviously photographing passengers before they board their flight. They started to roll this out in 2017, operational in 15 airports at the end of last year, 2018. Now, almost almost all U.S. passengers or all passengers at U.S. airports over the next four years will um, be subject to this facial recognition system. Um, your photograph at the departure gate cross-references the photo against a library of face images from visa and passport applications, as well as those taken by border agents when foreigners enter the country. And the purpose, you guessed it, is to crack down on those who are overstaying their visas here illegally or some other such violation. Um, The aim of the system is to offer biometric exit, which gives authorities as good an idea of who's leaving the country as who's entering. And that's important information. What do you think? Kind of creeps me out. <laughs> well, just the idea of, I mean, honestly, you are, you leave your house and you don't even have to leave your house. You are on camera. I mean, let's face it. Oh, so yes. it's, it's creeps you out, but you're on camera as soon as you walk outside the door. That's true. Um, and they're listening. I mean, how many people are convinced like our phones are always listening to us when you have a conversation and then, you know, a couple hours or a day or two later, like an ad pops up of something you were talking about. Um, I've seen some like GIFs and memes that are even like, I didn't even say it out loud. I just like thought it. <laughs> All of a sudden there was an ad. Um, oh, well, I mean, the Google search bar, I'll type in two letters and the thing I'm thinking of completes it it completes it it's creepy now that's obviously based on your search history and other th- 
but it's it, and it, others search and, history and other yeah. search history and but it's very very creepy. Yes. And um it immediately made me think of the movie which apparently is also a book Brooke just told me I didn't know that Minority Report where yes. um you walk in and it was a retina scanner and I remember there was this scene where Tom Cruise was like on a hunt and he walked into a gap and it screened the eyeball that he had taken from another person and it was like oh we have pants in your size based on your last and, and talked to him and thinking wow that's so far-fetched apparently it's not well the system is working it me out a little. it's not the, the introduction of the current uh, facial recognition identified seven thousand passengers since the introduction of the current system who had overstayed their visas and that's that's on fifteen thousand flights tracked. That's like a fifty percent hit rate. Meaning, and that's like a drop in the bucket. Every other every other airplane, someone is 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 blowing through their visa. Yes, and fifteen thousand <laughs> flights is a drop in the bucket of how many flights. It, it is. Um, U.S. Occur. Customs and Border Protection estimates over six hundred thousand people overstay overstay their visas every year. An offense that carries a maximum penalty of ten year ban from international. So. Um, new measures to crack down on this stuff and uh, more technology. All right, Cayenne. So speaking of airline travel, I took a trip recently to Europe. I say Europe because I went to more than three country so i figure three i can see i can call it to europe it was a trip to italy mm -hmm. and ireland planned um but you made a you made an un an unplanned landing in, in paris yeah, yeah. Well, you were stuck there for many hours which sounds amazing if it, you don't know why um what do you mean it sounds amazing like an un oh we stopped over in paris, paris. it was yeah. terrible it was the no. most <laughs> awful experience of all time two airports in paris airport. didn't we did leave the airport to go Just to another to airport the, yeah and uh, problem with the flight, long story short, emergency landing, everything is fine. Great trip. Um, f as the, as far anyone as anyone interested, you can check out uh, Cosmo Macero's angry tweets from tweet. that time. Uh, some, they weren't that angry. They were mostly observational. There's some angry people on those yes, tweets. Yes, angry people. Angry people. Captured on, yeah. in the informational uh, tweets. Yeah, and then I, I, I did, <laughs> I did uh, uh, document our trip, family trip, the kids, my wife, sister-in-law, my sister, her husband. It was a wonderful trip. Oh, it was trip. the whole Everyone, whole the whole team. clan, yeah. Um, documented nicely on Facebook, well, documented comprehensively. Uh, you be the judge of whether it's nicely, uh, with a lot of photos and stuff. I had some real FOMO. Yeah, I, ex I experienced um, some, some mild indignities, though. I mean, I got an artificial hip, right? So I got some metal in my body, and I'm used to the sort of gentlemen's pat down at like Gillette Stadium <laughs> right just kind of the hey all right up, make the, sure there's no there handle of vodka that's right no, yeah, the, the, the gentleman's pat down the courtesy pat down I mean this, you know I, I get up there and I'm like just so you know I got metal in my hip and, it, and here in the U.S. they they they, they respect okay. that once you're over in Europe once you're in Italy or France or Ireland they don't care so it was like every single security check and we had a lot of moving. Uh, we moved around a lot, so there was a lot of flights. There was a lot of pat downs, and they were not. They, there was nothing gentlemanly about these pat downs. <laughs> it was very, very, very comprehensive, if you know what I mean. Um, so I experienced that, um, but it was a. Uh, it, it, it was quite a wonderful trip. We did have 
there was a bit of a riot at Charles de Gaulle Airport at the I'm not going to mention the airline because it could happen in any airline, um, though you can read about it on my Twitter feed, um, where there were some issues with delays and uh, equipment on the plane not working properly and the plane not being fit to fly and the crew not being it was prepared. Bad. It wasn't great. But we had a pretty remarkable trip. Went to Rome, spent a day in Tuscany, went to a, a community in southern Italy called Gaeta, which is where my family's from and my father was born. Then we went. We spent the last thirty-six hours. Sounds like a Liam Neeson movie. Thirty-six hours in Dublin. That's where we, we ended our trip. So it was pretty terrific. That does sound amazing. Yeah, it was Barring, a good trip. And the nice thing is that when it starts off so rocky, it can only go up. Yeah, from it, there, I mean, right? we started right at the bottom of the barrel. The kids were like, "I want to go home. This is terrible." You know, yeah, it was brutal. Some the, the guy next to me on a plane, he was angry. He had his kids with him. He's like, "Are we gonna even make it to Paris? Can the plane make it that far?" Which, people by the way, f- keep your mouth shut, guy. Exactly, settle down. At we one don't need point, to rile people up. Uh, I, 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 you know, get people. Anxious. Flight attendants should not be running down the aisles <laughs> toward the cockpit. Even if I say I need two more Tito's and tonics, just please don't run because you you start to panic people walk with a purpose walk with a purpose don't run yeah um and then at one point she said it's not safe for us to go to rome so i said okay we're just going to pack it in two more titos and tonics please <laughs> let's <laughs> land and let's get to let's get to paris but it was it was it was an excellent trip uh regardless of those things but we, we were talking this week about um airline security and safety and uh it was interesting interesting trip to uh to Europe for Hi- me quickly highlight of the trip, um, and and you can't say like just time with the family and all being together. Got to be. I gotta say, I've been to Rome before and seen most of the sites. My favorite place in Rome is a a square called the Piazza Venezia, which is the most amazing memorial square you'll ever see. But we spent the first full day that we were there. We missed a whole day because of the flight problems in Tuscany and. Um, it's everything that you've heard about in terms of the most amazing Italian countryside, the most wonderful vineyards, the greatest wine, the most simple yet elegant lunch with my family on the in the Italian so that, in the Italian and countryside. And the views were good too. And the views were unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, in fact, we had wonderful views in just about every stop we made. Um, so that's probably the highlight. And I got to say, never been to Ireland, never been to Dublin. Um, it was a little bit or a lot like being home because it was very much to us um, uh, le- felt like Boston, and it was a lot of fun, and yep. uh, that was a good ending to the trip. But it was uh, pretty magnificent. Well, welcome back. All right. It's good to be back. Thank you, Cayenne. All right. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masera. That's it for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Amanda Hunter of the Barbara Lee Foundation. Hi, it's Hugh Drummond, and I'm joined with Laura Warwick, and we're about to talk to Amanda Hunter of the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. Hi, thank you for having me today. Sure. Um, Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the Barbara Lee Foundation and what you do there? So for the past 20 years at the Barbara Lee Family Foundation, we have studied the obstacles and opportunities that women face when running for office. And 
Our founder, Barbara Lee, is here in Boston, and she started doing this work 20 years ago because she realized in 1998 that women face additional barriers when they run for executive office. Barbara's dream has always been to have a woman president, which back then people laughed at her when she said that, and now they see that she was a visionary. But specifically to build a pipeline to the presidency for women, there needs to be more women governors and more women senators. And when women serve in executive office, there are additional barriers that they face. And so that's why we started studying women running for office. And we've studied every gubernatorial race involving a woman since 1998. And so you've, you've had an opportunity to study a lot of, of gubernatorial elections. Can you talk a little bit about some of the findings or takeaways that you guys have um, you know, come up with over the years after studying all of these? Sure. It's really interesting because it's our 20th anniversary, we've been looking back a lot and seeing what's changed and what hasn't. And some things still haven't changed at all, which is very sad. But certainly the past couple of years have felt very different. The conversation has changed across the country. What we found generally is that when women release their qualifications or release their resume, Men can do it and their qualifications are assumed, they get the benefit and women really still get the doubt. Even if they have the exact same resume, they're questioned and they have to prove that they're able to get results. And so running for executive office, voters have to be even more convinced that women are qualified because it's one thing if they're going to be part of a deliberative body, like a legislator at you know making decisions, but if they're going to be the decision maker, then they have to prove that they're even more qualified. And so for all the gains that we saw in 2018 with a record number of women that ran for office and won and a record number of women in Congress, it's important for us all to remember that most of those gains were in legislative bodies and women facing who are gonna be running for executive office, especially president, are going to still face additional barriers. So you mentioned the midterms, obviously more than 100 uh, women now in Congress. What does that mean? Well, the first thing I think that we need to recognize is that all of the women who ran and won, won because instead of trying to fit into an outdated template of what a candidate should look like, which was built by men, mm -hmm. they ran unapologetically as themselves. And women campaigned so differently in the past two cycles, even when you look at the 2017 municipals, we started to see that. It's what we call being a 360 degree candidate, bringing the whole of their life experience on the campaign trail, talking about their personal lives, and talking about things that maybe 20 years ago, political consultants would have urged them not to talk about, especially when you saw MJ Hager's ad about her tattoos and Tammy Baldwin talking about her mother's drug addiction and Candidates were really talking, frankly, about motherhood in a way that we haven't seen before. And voters connected to that authenticity, and voters tend to believe that women are in touch with their lives. And now that we have more women in Congress, they're bringing those life experiences to Congress. And so we already have women having very real discussions about balancing childcare, about trying to get home to have dinner with their children, things that maybe 20 years ago they would have been ashamed to talk about publicly and they would have had to pretend that they were 
almost robots and didn't have families. Now they're very openly having these discussions and it seems to really be resonating with voters. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting that you talk about even just, you know, the rapid changes over the past, you know, year and a half to two years. Can you talk a little bit about why you think we've seen such rapid change in this, this short period of time? I think that it's tough to attribute it to any one thing. Mm -hmm. It really feels, and it's fascinating to talk to Barbara Lee about this because she's been in this world for so long and she says that she's never seen a moment like this before. Certainly the Women's March in 2017 was a catalyst, but it's not the only factor. When you look at the Me Too movement and this just conversation of truth-telling that we've had in this country with a reckoning of all of these different stories coming out, people are feeling a sense of urgency to get involved and solve problems in a way that maybe they wouldn't before or they may have hesitated before and now they're throwing those hesitations aside and getting involved in politics. You know, public service as a career has is, is taken some hits lately. So what kinds of, what motivators are there? It seems like one of the biggest motivators that we've seen, and going back to the 2018 election, almost any candidate that won, I think, shared the fact that they were running because they saw the impact of an issue. Barbara always likes to joke that women don't run for office to seek fame and fortune, and they're not in it for the power. They're really running to solve problems. But that's really true when you look at the narratives of so many women that ran recently, they were activated into politics by something that affected their community or their family. When you look at the doctors and the CIA agents and the teachers and people from professional backgrounds that certainly weren't groomed for a life in politics that kind of put their careers aside and ran and won, it seems to me like the message to anybody that wants to run for office is that if you identify a problem that you want to solve and you feel so passionate that you can offer something, then you should run. Because we know from our research, it connects with voters when a candidate runs because they saw the impact of an issue. And we saw that so many times last year. How, how do you think, you know, the fact of the current president and the unique dynamic that he brings to the table, does that change how, how women should run or things they should think about or... Uh, have you th have you have you thought about any of those dynamics and how that impacts you know the women that are running? We looked a lot in 2016 at the Barbara Lee Family Foundation at the at different gender dynamics for men and women, and toxic masculinity was a huge theme in the 2016 election and mm -hmm. likely will be again. So we'll be keeping an eye out for that. But what's been so interesting so far is just seeing all of the candidates on the Democratic side continuing the trend of running unapologetically as themselves. Even when you look at the music that they're playing at their rallies, it's mm -hmm. a lot more personal. You see Senator Gillibrand talking about being a mother in very honest terms and making that really the headline of mm -hmm. her campaign, whereas before her kids might have just been trotted out at a rally or two. but you wouldn't want to make voters worry about who's watching the kids, which we know from our research still happens all the time. Voters worry about the effect of a campaign on young children. They want to know how a woman's going to balance caring for children and doing the job. They realize it's a double standard, but then they still participate in the double standard because they wouldn't ask the same of 
a father that's mm -hmm. running for office. But despite that, you still see Senator Gillibrand talking about her kids. You still see Elizabeth Warren coming up with very, very different innovative policies around economics. You see Senator Harris warmly connecting to people and having a disarming kind of sense of humor, connecting with voters. And Senator Klobuchar with her Minnesota nice, yep. mm -hmm. connecting with voters in a different mm -hmm. kind of way. So it doesn't seem to be affecting the women in any other way other than they are really bringing more of themselves to the campaign trail. And maybe a few years ago, they would have been trying to walk a finer line and polling more and listening to more consultants and not just being who they are. Um, I mean, the reality is we need more women as CEOs. We need more women on boards. And um, I think, I mean, they're probably connected, right? That if you have more women office holders, there's going to be uh, more opportunities across the board. And I think that works both ways because we often talk about how there are structural barriers for women running for office because they don't have access to as many high dollar donor networks as men because there aren't as many women on corporate boards and in C-suites and women don't have access still to all of the same private clubs and they're not on the golf course in the same way that men are. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of a two-way street. But we also know that we love the Marion Edel Wright Edelman quote, you can't be what you can't see. Because once you have a woman succeeding in a role, it breaks down the barriers with voters or with others in the business world and opens the door for more women. And that's why in states where there's a woman governor, there often can be another woman governor or more because voters see a woman succeeding in that role and then it's not a big deal to elect a woman. It's having the first to kind of break down those stereotypes. That's great. If people want to find out more, so our website is barbaraleefoundation.org and you can find all of our research. And I also would encourage everybody to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And Great. we have an excellent social media person that makes very dynamic graphics and they're very entertaining. So that's, that's great. great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Amanda, thank you very much. Thanks thank so you. much. And now, two minutes with Tom. Hi, Tom. Hi, Cayenne. How are you? Good. How are you? Away on air. Welcome back to Two Minutes with Tom. Here we are with Four and a Half Minutes with Tom. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as catchy that no, we, way. I know that, but we, we advertise it as Two Minutes with Tom, and it's always four and a half or five minutes long. Mainly because the alliteration of Two Minutes with Tom is far more catchy than Four and a Half Minutes with Tom. Thank you very much for that. But behind the scenes for all of our... OA on air listeners. We talking about workers today. Talking about workers today. So stop and shop. Obviously, headlines really took over for the last week. A couple of days ago, they mm -hmm. reached an agreement, which um, seems like another win for workers. Increased health, uh, continued health coverage, increased pay, retirement, pension benefits, and maintains time and a half on Sundays. So we're going into another presidential election. We saw a couple of candidates really kind of utilize this a little bit for as a platform um what it i don't know what does it mean a, a win for workers is, is big right now i, I think I, first of all it meant um 
I think it was havoc provoking for Stop and Shop because it was a 10 day strike. But the importance of. Over a holiday weekend. Over a holiday weekend. But the importance of the strike for the 30,000 employees who were benefited by it, I, I think, is pretty telltale. Number one. Number two, all the things that you say they, they, they gathered and were successful in winning are true, with one caveat, one exception. And that's time and a half on Sunday. They get it. And where it used to be by law automatic for anybody working on a Sunday to get time and a half after their t- traditional 40-hour week, that's no longer the case. Well, that changed last year. It changed last year. The law changed last year. And because of that, workers are going to have to renegotiate time and a half on Sundays every time they go back and renegotiate a contract. So, you know, it, it was. I would say it was a 90%, uh, a 90% success for Stop and Shop um, and for its workers. And I think everything worked out pretty well. And I should note that the time and a half on Sundays is for current members. So that, it doesn't, correct. so it's not going to be. It's not in effect for anybody to, that's not a current members. worker. That's yeah. right. Um, which is, we see it happen a lot in union contracts. They're, you know, the. Well, the argument goes that, you know, if you're going to give time and a half to Stop and Shop, don't you have to give it to the small mom and pops that are out there operating, but on very thin, very narrow margins, and therefore they can't afford to pay their workforce time and a half on Sunday? That's true, but um, that may or may not be true. I don't know the answer to that, but the fact of the matter is we want to get more more money for earned wage earners as best we possibly can so that their their quality of life continues to improve. Well, in the last year or so, we have seen um, uh, work to really weaken unions. The Janus ruling at the the Supreme Court level was huge uh, in terms of what it could mean for unions. Um, you know, a lot of unions haven't seen a big, big dip in numbers or any, you know, at, le- at least here. You know, I think Massachusetts is a, is a different state when it comes to, the, to the union The bell run by the, by the U.S. Supreme Court where they're saying to, for public service employees, those working in the pro- public sector, don't any longer need to, even though everybody in their, in their work local has voted for a union, Today, what the Supreme Court ruling has meant is that as I, as a worker, don't want to participate in that union, I don't have to. I don't have to pay the dues. I don't have to pay attention to their leadership. I can just be a worker for mm-hmm. the state, the city, the county, whatever it might be. And um, I, I think it's really telltale because it, 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 it should be a, a very large, very loud awakener for the labor leadership in this state and in this country. Now. As the, were you, are you at all surprised to see a win like this? I think the stop and shop win was was a was a good one, uh, obviously for the workers, but in this union climate right now. I, I think the union climate is is really is in a disruptive mode. I think because of that Supreme Court ruling, where it, for the moment only affects public service employees, with you know with this Supreme Court staying in place. I think it does not augur well for unionism overall, unless trade unionism and its leadership really feel as though it get to a point where they're representing their 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 uh, their membership and doing it in a way that their membership can measure the success and progress of their lives overall. That their quality of life today is better than it was two years ago, and that it will grow to be better two years from now than it is today. That's that's really very important. And it's uh, as we go into the presidential campaign, we have a lot of Democratic nominees coming uh, coming forward. I think 
what unions mean, particularly to the Democratic Party, will still probably be pretty important. I, I think that's right. And I think, uh, you know, equity and, 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 and wages are going to be central to whether people can afford to live the life they want to live, uh, earning what they need to earn in order to educate their kids, feed their families, put a, put a roof over people's heads and so forth. And if that doesn't, if that doesn't grow, then, the, then both parties are going to have a lot of trouble. All right. I'm sure more to come. Thanks, Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite listening platform of choice. You can also check out OA On Air on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.